Look at Luke chapter 11. Um, we will have a few more voices contributing on Sunday mornings over the next month or two, uh, both within and from outside table. Uh, if you want to take note that uh, Ali Emerson will be here on the 4th of June and looking forward to having him with us. Luke 11 verse 14 is uh, where I'm going to read from. The picture on the screen, if you look closely, you will see something underneath that foot getting crushed. Um, Yeah, love it. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke and the crowd was amazed But some of them said, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, There is a wonderful scene in the book, in the movie, where Aslan, after he has conquered the witch, goes into her castle, her lair, her palace, whatever it is. And in there she has kept all the stone statues of all of the inhabitants of Narnia that she has captured. And she keeps them captive at her castle. And Aslan goes into that place and he goes around the statues. It's beautifully portrayed in the film. He goes around just breathing on them one by one. And as he breathes on them, these grey stone statues have the colour returned to them once again and come back to life. It's one of my favourite images of Jesus. I think C.S. Lewis was a genius at, at imagery and at how he pictured things. And this is a really powerful image of Jesus plundering, going into the lair of the strong man and setting people free. And tension is rising for Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem. He's getting more opposition. The opposition is getting more vocal. And the source of the opposition is pretty consistent. Matthew and Mark tell us it's the Pharisees and it's the teachers of the law who are opposing Jesus. People who should know God who are in positions of leadership, but they are missing what God is doing. So much so that later in Luke, Jesus will weep over Jerusalem and he will say to the city, you did not recognize the time of God's visitation. 
They did not realize that God was among them in what Jesus was doing. So he delivers this guy from a demon in verse 14. This is something that has happened frequently in Luke's gospel so far. Jesus has shown his authority and his power over the demons ever since chapter 4. Effortlessly, over and over and over again. And this particular demon caused muteness. Now that does not mean that everybody who struggles with muteness has got a demon. But on this case, in this example, we're not just told that the man had an unclean spirit which is the scenario sometimes in the Gospels, were actually told the effect of it on him that he was mute. He was unable to speak because of this demon. And one of the things that we should maybe just hold in the background, which, which might come full circle at the end this morning, is the fact that in Scripture there, there is a theme, there is a precedent that you become like the thing that you worship. And in Israel, there was a problem in the Old Testament with idolatry. And the psalmist says in Psalm 115, Their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak. And he goes on to say, Those who make them will be like them. Worship Jesus and your character will change and you will become like Jesus. Worship idols, which in our age will not be a statue, but might be greed, it might be materialism, it might be lust, it might be all sorts of things. Worship those things and become like them. So this man, we don't know his story, but there was a demon in him and he was unable to speak. And I think it sums up the nation of Israel to a certain extent that even though they were no longer worshipping the gods of other nations, Their idol had become their interpretation of the law. Their religious practices and their traditions became their idol. And the nation was still steeped in idolatry because of that. Jesus drives out the demon and the crowd is amazed. And it's not just that this mute guy continues to be mute, but is a wee bit happier in his muteness or, or whatever. No, no, whenever Jesus shows up, when the kingdom of God comes, it reverses the effects of the kingdom of darkness. It doesn't coexist with them. It brings transformation and it brings change. God's kingdom displaces the kingdom of Satan. And in this man's life, that meant that the effect that the kingdom of Satan had on him, his muteness, was reversed. And he was able to speak. Paul talks in Colossians about how God has rescued us from a kingdom or a dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. A transfer. And what we get here is one verse in verse 14 that explains just what happened and then a long explanation of what was actually going on. Longer than a lot of other miracles and a lot of other things that Jesus does. Frequently you get a long description of what he does. Here, very short description and then a long explanation. This is a watershed moment in the ministry of Jesus. This is really important in understanding what he's about. Some of the crowd don't respond quite as positively. Okay, So we've had some that are amazed and then we have some, two groups. One group asks for a sign. Now, you've just seen a guy who can't speak 
now speak. And their response is, we need to see a sign. (laughs) We need to see something more before we believe. These guys want to sit on the fence. They just want to tag along. And you'll get this a lot in church, in society. You'll get people who want to tag along at a safe distance from Jesus. They want to sit on the fence. They don't want to reject him outright, but nor do they want to commit to fully following him. So they sit at a safe distance, so they think, and they sit on the fence. But the issue is there is no fence. Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. That's it. No fence. No in-between. And if you're not gathering, if your life is not drawing people to the kingdom of God, then you are scattering. Okay? There's there's just two options. There's no gray area. There's no in-between. There is no fence. And I don't want to linger on these people who asked for a sign, but just for your curiosity, the sign that Jesus gave them, he referred to as the sign of Jonah a bit later in the passage. And basically what happened was Jonah came and preached and the Ninevites repented. They accepted his message and they repented. But at the minute, the leaders of Israel aren't doing that. Solomon spoke great wisdom and a queen from a distant land traveled to listen to his wisdom. And at the minute, the people of Israel are not doing that. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to give you signs to convince you to believe. The sign is this, Jonah preached and people repented. Solomon displayed wisdom and people came to hear it. That's what I'm doing. You need to respond to my word, to my message. There has to be repentance in response to the message that he is bringing. He he says it again when a woman in the crowd comes to him in the middle of the passage and says, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. And without being ignorant, he says to her, No, blessed are those who hear the word and obey it. Not those who see signs and respond to signs, but who hear the message. How seriously do we take the message, the word of God? How seriously are we responding to it? Are we listening to it? Are we reading it? Are we listening to those promptings of the Spirit? One of the things that we're doing at the minute in leadership, we did it on Friday night and it was so good. We we aim to meet once a month, but it was so good on Friday night that we decided we're going to meet again this week. And what we're doing is we are taking the prophetic ministry that was brought to us a couple of Tuesday nights ago and we're teasing it apart and finding out prayerfully how do we as a church respond to this. Not just, well, wasn't that a nice night and wasn't it good to receive that ministry, but how are we going to respond? Because whenever God speaks... It's really important that people respond, that they listen, that they obey and and, and make a practical response to what was said. The second response of the crowd, so one, one group in the crowd have said, we want a sign. We want to sit on the fence a safe distance away from you, Jesus. We don't want to fully commit. We don't want to look too rad. We want to stay at a distance. The second group make a stunning accusation against Jesus. And they say, basically, you're in league with the devil. They, you know, Matthew and Mark call this the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. To take what Jesus is doing and say, what you're doing is the work of Satan. Now, I kid you not, I had somebody one day tell me that I was demon-possessed and that this church had been raised up by Satan and not by God. 
Okay? So, so this, this sort of accusation is still out there. It's alive and well. They went to Jesus and they said to him, you're in league with Satan. This word Beelzebul, were, this, you first heard this in Bohemian Rhapsody, did you not? Yeah? Okay. This, this, this random thing, like what on earth, Beelzebul, what does this mean? Uh, there are several possible meanings. One is Lord of the Flies, Lord of the Flies, and the very mention of that will have caused some of you to just break out in a cold sweat if you were made to read that book in GCSE English. Always knew it was evil. Uh, a second possible meaning is Lord of the House, and my favorite one, Lord of Dung. <laughs> this is a derogatory term that the Jewish people had for Satan. It was their sort of nickname of him, you know, to, a contemptuous name that they gave him. Most likely Lord of the house is, is, is what is meant. And they're bringing this accusation against Jesus that you're part of the house of Satan. You're not part of the house of God or the house of Israel. And it's amazing the things that people will say when they hate Jesus. And these guys, they are seeing Jesus do amazing things. They cannot deny the fact that he is doing amazing stuff. And instead of saying, yes, you are from God and you're, it's proved by these amazing things, they say an outrageous statement, you're in league with Satan. That's where you're getting your power. And you, will, you get that in the Bible and you get it in society. There's, there's a moment in John 19. It's one of the most outrageous moments in the build-up to the crucifixion where, where Pilate calls out to the people and says, Shall I crucify your king? And the response of the chief priests, God's men, they say, We have no king but Caesar. Which is outrageously stupid outrageously stupid but that's what happens when people hate Jesus we live in a, in a society that is sometimes described as being postmodern, and the postmodern mantra the postmodern motto is basically there is no absolute truth and the stupidity of that is that that very statement itself is a statement of absolute truth as far as they're concerned we are told that we must be tolerant of everyone in society, we must tolerate everyone and everything. We cannot be intolerant. Yet, society is becoming increasingly intolerant of Christians. <laughs> More than any other people group. And at the same time, society will tolerate men who claim to be women and want to have the rights that women have. Madness. And we have people who will look at the lavish beauty of the natural world, creation, and they will say that it all formed by a series of chance explosions somewhere in outer space and there was no intelligent design behind it at all. Madness. <laughs> it's just utter madness. But that's what people will say when they hate Jesus. And Jesus sets people free and these people, these leaders can't handle it. They think they know how the Messiah ought to act. And Jesus is not fitting into their categories. He is not doing what they think he should be doing. So they level these accusations against him. Do we do that? When God does not answer prayer the way we think he should, do we say, like Jesus in the garden, your will be done? Or do we lash out? 
with accusations and questions and a lack of trust. Jesus takes their argument apart in verses 17 and 18, basically says, how can I be in league with the devil? If the devil is casting out demons, how can his kingdom stand? And he goes on in verse 19 to say, if I drive out demons, who do your followers drive them out by? If I drive them out by Beelzebul. Difficult verse that, and it could, he could be referring to the disciples. He could be referring to other exorcists in Jewish culture. But he goes on in verse 20 to say something really powerful. He says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, you will not find the phrase finger of God used very often in your Bible. In fact, hardly ever. In fact, maybe only once, twice. In the Exodus, whenever the, the river water in the Nile is turned to blood, Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing and discount it. And the second plague is a plague of frogs and Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing and the miracle is discounted. The third plague is the plague of gnats. They cannot copy it. They cannot mimic it. And they say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. So this word finger of God is, is again, as we've seen so much in, in recent weeks, as we've looked at Jesus in Luke, this is Exodus language. Whenever Jesus is using or this term, the finger of God, when he's driving out demons by the finger of God, that means he is setting people free. This is the God of the Exodus who has come with power to set people free. The finger of God. And he goes on to tell this powerful little story. And these are the two verses that I just want to linger on this morning. Verse 21 and 22. It's, in the other Gospels, it's referred to as a parable. Jesus says, when a strong man, that's Satan. That's the witch in the lion, the witch in the wardrobe. When a strong man, fully armed, <coughs> guards his own house, his possessions are safe. So that picture is Satan. He has taken captive humanity. He has brought them to his house. And he is guarding and not letting them escape until someone stronger comes, a stronger man. And when the stronger man comes, what he does is he attacks and overpowers him. He takes away the armor in which he trusted, which is, I think, very similar to Colossians 1 or Colossians 2.15, where Jesus on the cross disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It's like whenever Satan comes at you and he's got a gun, but there's no bullet in it. The gun seems threatening, but there are no bullets in the gun. He has been disarmed by Jesus. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. No, no, no. <laughs> Jesus, who has overpowered the devil and taken away the armor in which the devil trusted. And then if we, if we compare that with Matthew's record of the same thing, we've got a phrase in the middle of Matthew 12, 29, where he says, how can anyone go into a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first 
binds the strong man. This picture, just visualize, let your imagination run wild. That's what Jesus wants you to do with these parables, these stories that he tells. Jesus is the stronger man who has gone to the strong man's house who no one else could overcome and has bound him. And now that he has bound him, he is able to plunder his house. Now, a plunderer was someone who in battle conquered an enemy and then took all the enemy's stuff, also known as spoil or booty. That means something else now. (laughs) The plunderer has come. And Jesus, when he's casting out demons, he is demonstrating that he is plundering the enemy's house. He is taking back what Satan has taken captive. That's the picture of Aslan breathing on the statues and setting people free. And that is the mission of the church. In one word, what is the mission of the church? It is to plunder. (laughs) To get out into society and bring the kingdom of God so that the kingdom of darkness is displaced. Not that they're side by side living, cohabiting, but that it is pushed out. That's why the prayer, thy kingdom come, is so important. Because it displaces other kingdoms. Jesus came, according to 1 John 3, 8, for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. We use such timid language sometimes about Jesus. The gospel writers don't use such language. Power, strength, binding, overcoming, attacking this enemy, this Satan. This is the picture of the the child crushing the serpent's head. And the question then comes... When was Satan bound? When was he bound? Because a misunderstanding of the book of Revelation could make you think that he has not been bound yet and that it will happen in the future. We'll go to Revelation someday, someday. (laughs) When all the hair is grey, maybe we'll we'll get to Revelation. But in Revelation 20, we read of an angel coming down from heaven. I tread lightly when I go to Revelation, but an angel coming down from heaven, a character coming down from heaven, having a key. Revelation starts with somebody who has a key, the key of death and hell. And the person that has the key of death and hell is Jesus. So we have this picture of one coming down from heaven with a key, And also with a great chain in his hand. And what does he do when he comes down from heaven? He seizes the dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil or Satan, and binds him for a thousand years. A period of time that people refer to as the millennium. Again, I tread lightly. (laughs) It is not, in my opinion, a literal thousand years. If you're going to make it a literal thousand year period, you've got to do the same thing with every image in the book of Revelation and you're going to run into serious trouble because you're going to have Jesus, a a lamb with seven eyes for a start, which is just not literal, okay? It's imagery. When did this time period start, this thousand year period? 
<clears throat> period, this, you know, which just refers to a long period of time. When did Satan get bound? Is it something that is way out there in the future? Or is it something that has already happened? Whenever Genesis 3 talks about the serpent coming into the garden, he comes in and he tempts Eve and Adam to disobey the word of God. They should have chased him out of the garden. Interestingly, in Luke chapter 3, whenever Luke gives us the, the ancestry of Jesus, he goes all the way back to Adam and refers to Adam as the son of God. We have the son of God, Adam, in the garden. The serpent comes and he does not drive the serpent away. Immediately after Luke 3, we've got Luke 4. And in Luke 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness, the Son of God, in the wilderness to do battle with the serpent once again. The first thing the serpent says to him in the wilderness is, if you are the Son of God, will Jesus succeed? Jesus is referred to by Paul as the last Adam, the Son of God. Will Jesus succeed where Adam failed? Will Jesus drive out the serpent? Will Jesus listen to what God has said and stand his ground? And in that wilderness, Jesus conquered Satan. Jesus repeatedly said, it is written. Whenever the serpent came and said, if you are the son of God, Jesus' counter was continually, it is written. He stood on the revelation of God and he defeated the serpent in the wilderness. And at that moment, the binding took place because straight after that, after Jesus had bound him in the wilderness, I believe he was bound in the wilderness, he was disarmed at the cross, Jesus comes out of the wilderness, goes in the power of the Spirit into Galilee and he starts healing and setting people free and casting out demons. One thing after another, he does none of that before he's in the wilderness with the serpent. He bound Satan. I picture Satan wrapped up in ropes, wriggling around in the desert, trying to get free as Jesus walks out with a smile on his face to go and plunder the enemy's house. To go and start setting people free now that he has restrained and held back the work of the serpent by overcoming him in the wilderness. The plundering begins. Jesus, throughout his ministry, shows us what plundering looks like. It looks like people being set free from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's Son. And I think there's a link between Jesus' victory over temptation and where no one else could see him. He was just him and Satan in the wilderness. <coughs> And Jesus was tempted and Jesus overcame by standing on the word of God. And he came out of the wilderness now in the power of the spirit and he went plundering. And likewise, I believe for us, those personal private battles, when we overcome by the word of God, when we like Jesus, stand our ground, then we will be much more effective 
in the plundering. Personal holiness, personal, private, practical devotion and holiness and fight against temptation is vital if we are then to go plundering with Jesus and see people set free. I just love the word. I love the image. Get it into your head. Because people, with all these terms that we use for Jesus, all of these titles, and they're all true and they're all good, but you don't often hear people say he is the plunderer. Well, he is. (laughs) And if we are about his business, then we will likewise want to see people set free. This plundering that he does, it reminds us of, as a finish, another picture from the Old Testament. And I think over time, with all the things that we've talked about here and all the teaching that we've done and looked at, I think we're starting to see a more coherent picture of what God is doing. The big picture, the God of the Exodus and the God of the Exile. And how the story of Israel all comes to its fulfillment in Jesus, the perfect son, the perfect Israelite. There's only one other place in your Bible where a strong man is bound and his house is plundered. Only one other place. And it is in Isaiah. And it is in the portion of Isaiah that we looked at around Christmas, which was written to the exiles in Babylon. Remember, they are in Babylon because of their sin. They're in Babylon because of their idolatry. They are facing the consequences of their idolatry. Like the man who's a picture back at the start of this passage, who has a demon and is mute. Idolatry has caused the nation to become like the idols they worship. They have lost their voice. They have lost their land and they have been brought to Babylon. Isaiah 40 to 55 is the key section that was written to give those people hope as they were captive to the strong man, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. They were in captivity and the question Isaiah puts to them is, can the prey be taken from a mighty man or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? Can the prey, the plunder, the spoils, can the captives be taken from the strong man and set free? And we're back to the issue. This is exile. Exile is about sin. And ultimately, this is about forgiveness. Can the people who are being held in captivity because of sin be set free? Can they be forgiven? And God then answers his own question through Isaiah. Indeed, This is what the Lord says, even the captives of a mighty man will be taken away and the prey of a tyrant will be rescued. I love this. I love this. For I will contend with the one who contends with you. What is it that contends with you? What is it that wants to hold you captive? Jesus says, God says, I will contend with that thing that is contending with you. I am the stronger man who can overcome that mighty strong man and set people free. And and we could just say, well, what's that got to do with us? We're not in Babylon. 
But Israel realized and Paul realized in 1 Corinthians 10 that behind idolatry stands demons. And behind all of the things that hold people captive in our context, in our society, in our world, behind all of those things that grab people's attention and blind them to the gospel, there is demonic activity. And what we're seeing and what Jesus does is the fulfillment of God's promise to bind the strong man, forgive sin, and set people free. I will contend with those who contend with you. Depression, guilt, lust, selfishness, greed, fear, whatever it may be, God says, I will contend with those who contend with you. We don't need to be held captive anymore. The stronger man has come. The finger of God language lets us know that the God of the Exodus is at work in Jesus. The strong man language lets us know that the God who delivers from exile is at work in Jesus. And that passage in Isaiah ends with this declaration that I, the Lord, am your Savior, Jesus, and your Redeemer, Jesus, and the Mighty One of Jacob. The stronger man has come. The mission of the church is to go plundering. To realize that we ourselves are the plunder that he has rescued. And that we are called to join with him in that great mission of seeing lives set free. Father, we thank you for this powerful picture of our powerful king. For that mighty finger of God. That we once again see the power of the exodus and the power of the exile and forgiveness of sins. Lord, let us not be content just to be set free and just sit around and enjoy our freedom. Let us rise up, church. Father, please empower us with your spirit that we would go plundering. Teach us, Lord. Show us, Lord. Lead us, Lord. Thank you for speaking to us in these days that you are revealing your heart to us, that you're drawing us together with with brothers and sisters in other places as well. Thank you, Lord. We want to go plundering with you. We want to see people set free, Lord. Fill us with the power of the Spirit, Lord, that you came out of temptation with. Let us be filled with that same power. Let us see victory, Lord. Let us see overcoming. Let us see your church grow, Lord Jesus. Add to our number, Lord, we pray. Fill us with your spirit. Oh, come on, Lord. Your kingdom come. There is stubborn kingdoms of darkness rooted deep in this town. And we've been called to disturb the foundations and to see them fall. Lord, lay that upon us as a responsibility and not just as a nice thought. There is power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. Please come, Father, and contend with those who contend with us. Bring freedom in in our hearts this morning as well.